A home, not a house. A home is a place of protection when there are precipitations. A place to cool off from the scorching sun. A place to warm up when it's chilly. A place to hide in windy time. A place to seek refuge when pursued by enemies. A sanctuary in times of trouble. A place to hide when hunted by known and unknown foes. A place with ever-waiting warm arms of embrace. A place one stays behind doors and curtains to offer prayers and supplications. A place where all share together. A place all weep, laugh, mourn, and heal together. Inner courtyard for soul-to-soul deliberations and open field to facilitate a place to receive discipline and correction whenever required or necessary, a place to receive accolade whenever there is success, a place that provides comfort when soul is tired and wearied, a place to recover when injured physically, emotionally, and spiritually, a place to regain trust when betrayed from outside, a place where everyone functions like a unit within a system, a place to nurture and to grow, a place no one owns, but where everyone owns everything, a place for we instead of me or I, a place one begins his or her past lives the present and prepares for tomorrow. Belonging. You can't walk down those halls again. They don't smell right. Your blood chemistry has shifted. No longer fearing a foreign language exam except in those dreams which creep in from umber corners, reach out skeletal fingers to fuse the conjugation between memory and a taxpayer's anxiety. Those notes still burn. Those passed through many hands or slipped through the grate of industrial gray locker doors. Grasps toward eternity Shouts into the dank caves of desire for touch and for understanding. They all say, let me in. They all say, please dare to be what I want you to be. Those schools have grown small. Your thoughts no longer fit into the courtyards and cafeterias. You recognize the torture of conformity as you rub the brands of unanimity or outcast, feel their fire and point your children down the same chute you once bawled within. From Desiderata. 
go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace with your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Good morning. I want to first start off this morning thanking you all for having me, for welcoming as your, me as your guest, and for sharing this beautiful Sunday morning worship with me. It's not often I get to experience prayer outside of my own tradition, so it's always a treat to be able to witness authentic prayer from a different perspective. I also want to thank Reverend Rachel for inviting me to be a guest this morning, and for her bravery in welcoming me to share this morning's message without really knowing what I'm going to say. (laughs) Being the spiritual leader of a congregation myself, I know you have to have uh, some level of trust in your invited speaker to not completely offend your congregation, so I want to thank you for your kind invitation and your trust. And on that note, I'd like to tell you a joke. A Jewish man gets stranded on a desert island. He's alone for a number of years until one day a search party miraculously finds his island and goes to rescue him. He's so happy to see people after so long, the man takes his rescuers on a tour of the town he's built for himself. He shows off his home, the general store, the product of years of building alone. So after the tour, one of the rescuers says to the man, I notice there's just one of you, but there are three synagogues on this island. What gives? Well, says the man, this one here, I go to to pray daily. That one over there, that's the one I'll go to on special occasions. And that one over there, 
That's the one I won't be caught dead in. <laughs> this joke, depending on who tells it, can be funny, but it also speaks to a truth that we all know somewhere in our conscious or unconscious mind. We all want to feel like we belong, like we fit in somewhere. School time is that time when we start to sense that belonging or not. And that sense really becomes acute. How's the rest of my class acting? Whose hair is like mine? Who dresses like me? Whose body looks like mine? Whose family lives like mine? Who goes to my church or my synagogue? Many of us become aware that we are different in some way. And so we try to discern how we fit in with those people around us and how the people around us fit in or don't with who we wanted to be. Some of us found friend groups that would allow us to belong to a group of peers who looked and acted similarly. The jocks, the indoor kids, the theater group, the orchestra and band members. Some of us didn't quite fit into any of those groups and defined ourselves proudly by not belonging to any of those groups. The reality is that we all hold on to that desire for belonging, and so we go in search of that in our adult lives. That joke I just told you illustrates, to an extent, the understanding of religious community with which I grew up. For the better part of my formative years, I lived in the Detroit metropolitan area, an area at the time that was home to tens of thousands of Jews and many Jewish congregations of every type. Each congregation had its own flavor, its own personality, and there was a level of pride in the congregation one called their own. There were the congregations with the cool rabbis or the nicest buildings or the most Hamisha, the most friendly congregations. Each particular congregation had what its members were most proud of. Those members knew what they liked about their home congregation and what they didn't like about the congregations to which they didn't belong. Yet a larger percentage of my friends chose to remain unaffiliated but remained with a strong Jewish identity. The denomination of Judaism in which I was raised, Reform Judaism, was represented in the Detroit area by at least five different sizable congregations. Again, each with their own personality and each with their own way of doing things. So while the congregations were distinctively different, the demographics of these congregations tended to be very similar. They're made up of relatively well-educated individuals, largely of Eastern European descent. They were by far largely left-leaning, living in an urban or suburban area, and identified as being culturally Jewish, even if they didn't belong to a congregation themselves. I understood to be a Jew, what it meant to be a Jew by my community around me. Liberal, social-minded, worldly, engaged in social justice, at least tangentially aware of Jewish holidays, and it had much less to do with congregational affiliation, but it had to do with mindset. Then I entered rabbinical school, 
and had that concept seriously challenged. My first year of rabbinical school I spent in Jerusalem, but upon my return and relocation to Cincinnati for the remainder of school, I was assigned a student pulpit, a small congregation that was too small to employ even a part-time rabbi, but was happy to welcome a student rabbi once or twice a month to lead services and to spend some time with the remaining members of the small community. So some of my classmates were assigned congregations in places such as rural Ohio or Indiana, parts of western West Virginia, even Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I had the fortune to be assigned to McGee, Arkansas, a little town in rural Arkansas in the heart of the Mississippi River Delta. It's closer to Mississippi and Louisiana than the rest of Arkansas. This was an overwhelmingly poor, rural farming town surrounded by cotton and soy fields. Didn't even have its own hotel. So my second time visiting McGee, I was picked up by one of the men who had grown up in the congregation. He was in his 60s and had lived his life in rural Arkansas. He was able to tell me at any time how much exactly soy or cotton were selling for. He decided I needed to be exposed to his way of life. So he informed me that he was taking me to his deer camp. So I had grown up going to various camps, summer camps, but I could not imagine what a deer camp would be. So we drove and we drove and we drove. And if I had to explain to you where we were, I would best explain it as if you went to the middle of nowhere and took a left. <laughs> so we arrive at this camp, and I see around me men of various ages in various designs of camouflage and bright orange, all carrying firearms. And we pull up to this cabin on the property. The camp itself was situated in a number of acres of forest, and it was shared between a number of families who got together to hunt during the season. So when we get out of the car, I'm greeted by no fewer than five men far larger than myself, holding guns, and not really sure what to make of this stranger who was arriving with their hunting buddy dressed far nicer than any of they were. So I'm looking around, and my congregant says to his friends, fellas, this is my rabbi. <laughs> At that point, I began searching for an exit. I had every movie of every northern city boy encountering good old boys down south flashing through my mind. And at this point, I realized I still had quite a bit to learn about my American Jewish community. Until that point, I had a clear idea in my head of what it qualified someone to belong to the community I knew of as my own. A particular political outlook, a lifestyle, a level of education and worldliness, but in my visits to McGee, I understood that those were criteria not shared among all Reformed Jews in the United States, let alone all Jews. And I still had quite a bit of learning to do. If it wasn't lifestyle and political leanings then, then it had to be religious observance, right? Culture was one thing, but religion, that was what took me down to Arkansas in the first place. So that, that must be it. We all belong to the Jewish people, so we're all religiously on similar footing. I mean, we all identified as Reformed Jews. That's what qualified us, right? Well, I was trained and educated alongside rabbinical colleagues of widely varying approaches to Judaism. Some kept strict kosher. Some gleefully ate pork products. 
Some were happy to officiate marriages between Jews and non-Jews. Others were firmly against it. I thought of my colleagues, all Reformed rabbis and rabbinical students, and I thought of this tiny temple in McGee. There was so little commonality, they may as well have belonged to different movements. The folks in Arkansas were happy to take the student rabbi to crawfish boil, while my colleagues were teaching various levels of kashrut, of Jewish law, of, uh, of food law, to their student congregations. The vast majority of services in Arkansas were led in English, while other student pulpits demanded far more Hebrew. How are these communities both Reform and Jewish? How is it that we all belong to the same movement when our expressions of religion were so vastly different? The joke I told you earlier illustrates another aspect of that desire to belong. That is defining who we are and who they are. In order to define who belongs, we have to also define who doesn't belong, right? As much as we strive to define ourselves in the positive by who we are and what we believe, it's sometimes easier to also define ourselves by the negative, by who we are not, what we don't believe. Until the last 30 years or so, Judaism as a whole defined a Jew by one's bloodline. If your mother was Jewish, you were considered Jewish no matter if you were raised Jewish or not. If your mother wasn't Jewish, you weren't, even if you were raised in a faithfully Jewish home. Other faiths, for example, certain Christian churches, baptize infants so they know that an individual belongs to the community when they're baptized in the church. But what about those faith communities without such a clear-cut right of entrance? Well, Reform Judaism changed its concept of matrilineal descent being an entry into the Jewish people when it began to accept people born to Jewish fathers as well. But it also demanded that a child defined as Jewish had to be raised in a Jewish home, thereby accepting a broader definition of a Jew and also complicating the definition. So what about faiths that require no immersion, no birthright, no demands on lifestyle? How do communities with broad definitions of belonging define how to belong? And how do we find that belonging in a world more and more devoid of black and white and filled more and more with shades of gray? Is it belief in God? Belief in the power of humankind? Is it belief at all? How about practice? Do we belong because we all do or don't do the same things? Speak or dress the same way? More and more, the answer to these questions are no. As communities strive for openness and inclusivity, my community included, we necessarily loosen the definition of what it takes to belong to our particular group. So how do we find belonging? Data on religious affiliation paints a picture of faith communities unlike we've seen before. It tells us that those who define themselves as belonging do so not out of familial connection or a sense of responsibility or upbringing or birthright, but because they've found meaning in the group to which they've chosen to belong. They belong not because they fit the definition of belonging, but because they make the choice to belong. 
They believe in the group and its mission. They support a particular cause, get personal satisfaction out of belonging and want to be a part of something they believe in. This is partly what's made keeping a church or synagogue growing and vibrant even more of a challenge. Belonging to a church or synagogue has stopped being the default for younger generations, and so we must strive as houses of worship to which our membership wants to belong. We need to strive to become continuously to be where people want to belong. It'd be disingenuous to suggest that fostering a sense of belonging lays only with the churches and synagogues, because as much as you get something out of being a part of a group, belonging is mutual. As much as you belong to a community, that community belongs to you. As such, it's up to you to take an active role. How many of you at some point has said or thought, I sure wish the church did X? (laughs) I wish more people in church would do Y. When your church asks for financial support, how many of you leave your fellow churchgoers to offer their resources? We don't need hands, don't worry. Anyone think of an area of study they've always wanted to dive into? an area of social engagement that needs more attention, a subject you're particularly passionate about that you think would inspire passion amongst your fellow churchgoers? How about a concept of prayer you'd like to experience or explore more deeply? Now, how many of you, after thinking of something, did something to bring it to your community? In order for us to stay connected to the communities to which we belong, we need to continue to get from those communities something of meaning. But those communities need your help in remaining meaningful and relevant. Belonging is no longer as simple as showing up for a service once in a while. Belonging necessitates a relationship of mutuality, where those who belong understand that their church, their synagogue, the group to which they belong also belongs to them. This means taking an active role in its governance, in securing its future, both spiritual and financial, in remaining relevant to continue to grow and remain that vibrant place to which folks are proud to belong. If we're going to continue to choose to belong, we're going to have to change our concept of what belonging means. If we are committed to our places of worship, the communities to which we belong, We must not only belong to those communities and groups. We must own them and accept them as belonging to us and interact with them in that way. This means taking an active role, devoting time and resources, giving a piece of you to your church and to your community. Belonging can no longer be merely showing up. Belonging demands a piece of every one of us. As long as you carry your faith, your church, your community in you, and as so long as your community is a force in your life, so may you be a force in your community.